The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Gabrielle Mack. She is both a physical therapist and an occupational therapist. She's based in St. Louis, Missouri. She recently gave a presentation for Gateway Greening's 12th Annual Community Agriculture Conference, and her title was The Sensory and Motor Benefits of School Garden Programs. And I was blown away by the value of green activities, and I knew I wanted to have you on as my guest. So, Gabrielle, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. Well, you've got a really interesting background in that you have degrees in both physical therapy and occupational therapy. Can you just tell our audience, what is the difference between the two? Right. Well, there is some overlap, and people often ask that question. So I would say physical therapy is more based in the body. It's more biomechanical in nature. So it's treating dysfunction in the body through exercise, movement, that kind of thing, whereas occupational therapy works with people to help them regain the ability to do meaningful activities in their life. And so that can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. Interesting. Um, Yeah. So we work with the body, but also in a social context quite a bit. And so you'll see a lot of occupational therapy outside of the medical model in a more social model. So I feel like OT has some folks on it that go into some very holistic areas that interest me. Yeah. So how did you first become interested in this field? Because you've worked in this field for a couple of decades now. What was it that appealed to you about the profession? Right. Well, growing up, there were two things that I really loved. And one was making things and doing craft-related activities. And the other was learning about the body and health science. So I knew I wanted to be in a helping profession. And when I learned about OT, it wasn't until I was already in college, but I learned about this profession that historically used crafts and arts and crafts in order to facilitate healing. And I said, well, I'm all in. (laughs) So that's how I got into OT. And then I entered OT at a time in the profession when it was kind of morphing from a mental health model into a more medical model, and there was a lot of overlap with PT, and I had a lot of classes with physical therapists and also became interested in that. And so that's how I ended up pursuing both fields. Mm. Well, your presentation that you gave for Gateway Greening marries both of those fields so beautifully and touches on the work that I love, which has to do with the power of food and growing our own food. And there's something about having children in particular plant seeds, watch that plant grow, and then cook it. So I always say if you've got a picky eater, the way to solve that is just to simply have them grow some food (laughs) and harvest and cook it and your problem is solved. 
but you take it to a much higher level. And so I wanted to talk to you about that. So what I loved about your presentation was you spoke about this model of mental health and how we've got these three sensory systems as part of the central nervous system pyramid. Let's just describe for our listeners, like show us that pyramid structure in our minds and tell us about those three sensory systems and how they are fundamental to our mental functioning. Sure. So we have a lot of sensory systems and people are aware of the basic sensory, the five senses that we learn as kids, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, that sort of thing. But in addition to that, there are other senses or sensory systems that are not as generally known. And so one is a system that controls our balance, and that's the vestibular system. The second system is the proprioceptive system, and that's a system that helps us kind of develop a map in our brains of where our body parts are and helps us to use our body in a coordinated method. And then the third system that I tie into this is our actually our system of touch, our tactile system, because those three systems form a foundation for all of our other systems. For example, in order for us to process what we see and what we hear and what we taste and what we smell, we need to have a good foundation in our nervous system. And so it's the vestibular system for balance, the proprioceptive system for movement sense, and then our system of touch that provides that foundation. And if those sensory systems are well-developed with a normal child development, then that's going to prime our nervous system for learning so that if we have a good foundation, everything above the chain is going to fall into place better. What I thought was so interesting was how time spent in nature is so critical to the development of those fundamental systems. And you, I have a quote from you that we are designed to move and thrive in nature. And you touched on the fact that we have really moved from being outdoor livers to indoor tech-based living activities and how that has really affected us probably more than we realize. And you point out why it is so critically important that we get back outside and into nature. So one of the things that struck me was with regard to the vestibular system, you said nature sounds, which we all love and appreciate. You helped us explain that nature sounds take us out of the fight or flight response. How does that work? So all three of those sensory systems that I just talked about can be very calming to our nervous system and help us regulate our nervous system. The vestibular system sends information to our brain from our inner ear. So our sense of balance, this really basic foundational sensory system, is tied in, literally <laughs> tied in with our auditory system, with our inner ear mechanism. And so when we're combining movement with nature sounds or sounds, for example, if you're outside, you're moving, you're hearing the birds, you're hearing the breeze in the trees, that's providing even more calming input and regulating input to the brain. And because we're, I think there's a theory, at least, which makes a lot of sense to me, 
that we are designed to thrive in nature. It's those nature sounds that are calming to our nervous system because they're familiar and it's what we seek out. It's what we have from an evolutionary standpoint and genetically it's what we, it's what is familiar to our body. Mm. And you even shared research that they looked at individuals, they measured cortisol levels in saliva, which is of course a measure of stress. Mm -hmm. And you were able to show that when people spend time in green space or have this green time, that they can measure the cortisol levels in saliva actually declining. Right. Yeah, that was a study from 2017. It was actually a study in Korea, and that's exactly what they did. They were working with what they called maladjusted elementary school children, and they participated in various horticulture-related activities for a period of nine weeks. And so they took saliva samples before and after this nine weeks of green activities. And yeah, they found greater than a 37% decrease in the salivary cortisol levels after the nine weeks compared to before. Wow. Such a simple way to reduce stress that doesn't come in the form of a pill. You know, it's not a med... Exactly. You don't, we don't have to medicate people. We just have to make sure that we have yeah. some beautiful time in nature. What a great prescription for health. Well, you exactly. also spoke about how it's important to move our bodies and do heavy work mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. that reflects back to our nervous system. So, of course, we tend yes. to separate the head from the rest of the body, but you brought yeah. it all together. How does that work? So that is part of our proprioceptive nervous system. So that's one of those three foundational sensory systems that I mentioned earlier. And so proprioception is a big word to describe what happens in our body When our muscles and joints move, there are receptors in our muscles and in our joints that sends information to our brain that tells us what part of our body is moving, what direction it's moving in, and so forth. And so that helps us to be able to coordinate our movements. And what stimulates those receptors in the first place is resistance. So if you're pushing on something and your muscles are contracting against something or if you're pulling on something or you're lifting something, those are things that will stimulate the receptors, send information to our brain, and for whatever reason, that's just the way that we're wired is that that kind of input is calming. And I think it's really interesting because in my mind, I always take things back several hundred thousand years or millions of years or whatever to, you know, I think about lifestyles, you know, a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, or even before that, the way we evolved was by using our bodies and pushing heavy boulders and digging things and wrestling animals for our food. And so our body developed in such a way that we needed that input and we utilized that input for more information in our brain. So it just is, it's calming, you know, when people are very dysregulated, you know, just thinking about the school environment or a clinical environment, that is actually one thing that is utilized by therapists, by teachers, lots of people. They use those kinds of strategies. And so we used to do that a lot as humans, even as recently as 100, maybe 110, 20 years ago, we did a lot of that kind of resistive work as part of our day. And so we got that naturally occurring stimulation into our nervous system that kept us regulated. 
in a lot of settings, we just don't have that as much now. No, we don't. In fact, you know, my kids are grown now, but I remember being actively involved, of course, in the classroom when they were young. And I always wondered about how recess was taken away from kids who needed it the most, right? It's like all the things that you went through saying that, you know, if you're having problems with self-regulation, you need to get outside. And what do we do? We make them stay inside the classroom. That's just a really bad idea. Oh, yes. Hopefully that's gone by the wayside. (laughs) I hope so. Well, your research and your work will help make that happen. I know. You know, the other thing that you mentioned with regard to the tactile system is that the nervous system likes dirt. (laughs) Tell me about that. So, again, I think about the way we developed as humans. We were outside. We were in the elements whether that was rain or snow or dirt or sand or ocean water, the river, constant stimulation onto the surface of our body. And again, that's just a way that the nervous system figures out its wiring. It's one way. So if we don't get as much of that kind of stimulation, if you have a kid who's raised by very fastidious people and they don't ever let, you know, a speck of dirt get on them or they wipe their mouth as soon as they start to smear their food on their face. What's happening is that that nervous system is not getting the benefit of stimulation all over the surface. And so the skin is our largest organ. And that's how a developing nervous system gets information through input, input, input. And so... Yeah, the more that a kid has stimulation on the surface of their skin, the better they're going to sleep. There, it, I think, even probably impacts, like, whether or not sometimes some picky eaters can be related to that lack of tactile stimulation and might also see some what's called tactile sensitivity if a person really has been deprived of stimulation on their skin, which means that now, as they're getting older in their nervous system, somebody touches them and it feels very abrasive. Mm. So, yeah, again, it just kind of goes back to how we developed as humans being in the elements and the body just needing that to function. You make me realize how our lifestyles have changed so much, and it makes me wonder just how much of these lifestyle changes have led to serious, you know, mental problems and emotional health problems that we see in kids today, like with hyperactivity or just, as you mentioned in your presentation, you know, not having the ability to self-regulate and how that's connected to all of these physical activities that we used to enjoy. Gabrielle, I need to take one quick break and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Gabrielle Mack. She is a physical therapist and also a licensed occupational therapist. And we are talking about her wonderful presentation that she gave with the Gateway Greening Organization in St. Louis. The title of her talk was The Sensory and Motor Benefits of School Garden Programs. But you actually went way beyond school and just talked about these benefits to so many of us in in terms of just getting outside. I want to talk a little bit about this idea of trauma. And I recently learned more about trauma-based care and trauma-based therapy in the food and nutrition world in relation to people who have to deal with economic hardship and just 
having to struggle with food insecurity and understanding more about the different levels of trauma that people really do experience. And in the healthcare world, maybe it was different for you, but that wasn't part of the curriculum back in the day when I studied. And so I was so interested in the fact that you were able to bring forth this notion that, oh, for individuals, especially individuals struggling with trauma in their lives, getting outside in nature and participating in gardening projects and programs is especially beneficial. Why is that? Right. Well, because the things that we talked about, the the ways of developing our nervous system in a manner that it was intended to be used is very regulating to us. So what happens in trauma is that because of sustained stress, for whatever the reason, there's many, many reasons, but that sustained stress causes a part of the brain called the hippocampus to shrink and a part of the brain called the amygdala to grow. So, and the reason that happens is because the amygdala is the alarm center of the brain. So when there's something traumatic going on, it, the red siren in the brain gets going and turns on the whole fight or flight system and increases the cortisol and stress hormones and that affects, that just has multi-system negative effects. But because there's sustained stress, that alarm system part of the brain continues to fire and fire and fire and fire. And so neurons that fire together, they wire together, and that part of the brain kind of overdevelops. The part of the brain called the hippocampus is the part that shrinks. And the hippocampus is actually a part of the brain that has to do with memory and learning. And so this is the part of the brain that you actually want to develop a little bit more. But because it's getting overrided by the alarm system of the brain, it's shrinking. And so because the brain is spending so much energy and so many calories on this hypervigilance, it doesn't have as much space to work on attention and what's called as executive functions, like being able to focus on something and learn something and make plans, make a goal, carry out a task, that kind of thing. So again, getting back to stimulating those foundational nervous systems through movement, deep pressure, heavy work, getting the proprioceptive system online is going to feed the brain with lots of good input, calming input, and the vestibular, you know, moving, getting the person in different positions, which just happens naturally when we're doing nature-related activities and outdoor activities. So those are the systems that have the regulating effect on the brain. And so it can, I think, over time probably can mitigate some of that hypervigilance and have maybe an effect on that amygdala or alarm system of the brain to kind of calm that down a little bit. Yeah, it's just fascinating. And you're making me remember a time when I had visited Alice Waters' school garden program. She was like the, you know, really the first one to bring this concept to life. And the thing that I remember most about that tour was that she said that kids that don't get along in the classroom 
will be working side by side in the garden and they would they'll just get along fine. And then of course when they go back inside the classroom, they're much better able to handle their schoolwork and handle their assignments. So you're yeah. explaining what we saw or what we heard through the brain mechanisms, which I just think that's fascinating and how I wish this was more common knowledge so that we would have more of these kinds of programs institutionalized in our schools and in our detention facilities where kids with trauma often yeah. have a lot of struggle. Yeah, yeah. It would make things a lot easier for teachers, for administrators of facilities. It'd make it a lot easier for them if their kids got these activities because a lot of things would fall into place with the kids that may not be right now. Right. You also talked about something called media addiction and how do we, and a lot of the questions from your webinar had to do with how do you get kids outside? And for kids who really do seem to be resistant to put down their phones or get away from the screens, have you worked with that at all? And can you describe how that works, getting the child of course, when they're young, it's probably going to be the easiest time to do it. But when you're working with pre-adolescents and teenagers, getting them shifted away from media and into the natural environment, how easy is that? Well, it's interesting because, for example, in the school that I work now, I have an OT classroom, which is chock full of movement equipment. And the kids will come to the room, and that's the first thing they'll want to do is just move. They'll want to bounce on the balls. They'll want to get on the trampoline. So they just, like, they just kind of intuitively know that they, they gravitate to, like, I need to move my body. And I'm not currently in a setting where I can get kids outside for therapy real easily. That's something that I would like to do and hopefully develop. But I think kids just come to it naturally. I actually... I was leading a small child out of the therapy room yesterday back to his classroom. And this was a kid with some pretty substantial special needs. And the door at the far end of the hallway to the outside was just propped open slightly so that the recess class could come back in. He saw that light streaming in, and he just made a beeline for it, and he just went. And I followed him, and we went outside, and I could not get that child back in. Which is another story, but I think if you just provide the opportunities, kids will do it. I think they don't do it, and it's an easy default to stay inside, and screens can have a certain addiction. I'm not well-versed really on that specific topic, but I think that that's kind of general common knowledge, and so it's hard to pull the kids away, but I think just do it. Just get them outside, and I think their intuitions will take over. Yeah. You also had described some research that looked at different kinds of activities. So you had free green space outside, and then you described an activity where maybe there'd be play outside, but on a concrete basketball court. So they were outside, but they weren't really enveloped in green space. And then that was compared to indoor activities. And of course, the green space won hands down. But you made me think yeah. about children that don't have access to green space and how critical it is for city planners to protect and preserve that space. Yes, absolutely. Even a park, you know, it doesn't have to be anything super elaborate. But yeah, in that study, you're right. It was the, 
the outdoor spaces were like a you know hanging out in the parking lot or playing basketball or just sitting on the corner talking to a friend or something, which they refer to as built outdoor spaces, mm. as opposed to green outdoor activities, which I think in the study they had mentioned was could be as simple as just being in a park. So yeah, I agree. City planners, hopefully, yeah. They'll yeah. take these things into consideration. And I think over the years, we've seen increased rates of diagnoses with things like hyperactivity, you know, ADHD. And I just hope that the therapists that work with kids, because it's not probably easy to get, you have to get a referral always from the primary care mm-hmm. doctor to see mm-hmm. an occupational therapist, to see a dietitian, to mm-hmm. see a physical therapist. How often are we bringing people with your expertise to medical conferences so that the primary care physicians realize that they've got a tool that's inexpensive and extremely powerful? Right. And it's really interesting because the authors of this study brought out that point exactly because this, this particular study that you just mentioned was a study that involved kids who had an ADHD diagnosis. So the author's you know, they kind of proposed in their conclusions, like, this could be a green dose. This could be something on a prescription pad that a doctor writes out, just like they write out for medication. And so it definitely, the green outdoor activities definitely had a positive impact on some adverse symptoms of ADHD that the kids were experiencing. And so, yeah, how great to just have that knowledge as a parent or a layperson, and to just be able to get kids outside and know that it's helping. Exactly. We just have a minute left, and I wanted to give you some time to bring forth any information that you've come across in your research and in your extensive work that you would like our listeners to know about the connection between green space and good mental and nervous system functioning. Right. Well, being outdoors and being in nature has always been really valuable to me, and it wasn't even anything I ever had to develop per se. It, it was just always there, and so I feel like it comes really. You know, I seek out the outdoors, so I feel like I've benefited from it firsthand. And gosh, I just think, especially at a time of year like this, where there's so much wonder and there's so much to see, and things are changing every day. I would just encourage whatever, whatever listeners can do to encourage children to get outside, to become aware of the change of seasons, to become aware of things that are going on around them outside in nature. Even if you have limited, you know, I live in a very urban area, but there are times when I walk down the sidewalk and there's pear trees blooming somewhere in front of a store maybe, or maybe there's a planter on a sidewalk in front of a store, or something. I think there's just so many ways to experience the benefits of nature ourselves. And then again, just to point it out to children to teach them because because their lifestyles are so different than they would have been a couple of generations ago. I think they will really benefit from having things pointed out to them. So that's what I would suggest. These are great tips. This is incredibly important information. Unfortunately, we have to close 
But I need to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Gabrielle Mack. She is a registered physical therapist and a licensed occupational therapist. Her excellent talk for Gateway Greening in St. Louis was titled, The Sensory and Motor Benefits of School Garden Programs. And I will provide a link to some the Biophilia Center, Kids Gardening Sites, and the Children and Nature Network, as well as Gateway Greening for people to learn more. Gabrielle, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. It was a pleasure.